0: A special edition of the Mintz podcast series in the boardroom: practical advice and guidance for growth-oriented companies. We wanted to come together today in light of the fact that Elizabeth Holmes was sentenced to 11 years in jail on the four counts of fraud against her investors at Theranos, and the fact that Sunny Balwani, her co-conspirator, is set to be sentenced on December 7th. Again. Uh, for counts of fraud against the investors, but also fraud against patients. So I wanted to bring together our regular podcast team, Melanie Levy, our capital markets lawyer in San Diego, and Tom Burton, a partner in our Boston office, to talk to our audience about what are the lessons we can learn from Theranos. Often when these things happen, like Theranos or more recently FTX, or in the past Enron or Tyco or Bernie Madoff, We think of these things as one-off, as the extreme cases. But when you practice in an area like we do, where there's disruptive technologies and folks who are really changing the world, you know, there's often this kind of feeling of fake it till you make it. And when it comes to the boardroom, that is the place where we're supposed to slow things down and make sure that we're not causing the kind of damage that Theranos caused both to its investors, but also to its patients. And so in doing that, I wanted to bring Tom and Melanie back together here and to have a special edition on what are the lessons to be learned. One of the things that jumps out to me about the Theranos situation is, of course, the concentration of power in an inexperienced CEO and maybe also about how carefully the communication was orchestrated. Tom, what are your thoughts about that particular issue?
1: Yeah, so one of the challenges I'll see, and in, in I look back and reflect on companies that might not have succeeded as well as they could have, is a common denominator is often a, a very strong willed founder slash CEO. Often they are one and the same and they continue in that role for the first time CEO for time. And they do so uh, with a, a method of uh, controlling information. So, you know, all roads lead to that individual uh, on inputs. And all roads uh, for outputs come from that individual. So there is a natural filtering of information by that individual that can, for better or for worse, and in some cases for worse, uh, yield unacceptable risk for the, ultimately the business and its investors. A common denominator, when I think about these situations, you mentioned you know, Dernos, Madoff, going back to Enron, and we can look back to some of these other scandals 20 some odd years ago. You know, when the economy is going well, you can pretty much do and say what you want. When the economy isn't, that's when these the the shenanigans are, are exposed. Often, you have highly credible people in the boardroom, and there is almost an assumption that because you have highly credible people in the boardroom, that you don't necessarily need the same kinds of controls and procedures. In compliance rules that you would have in in boardrooms where you might not have people who are as well known or celebrity types, so uh, it's really, to my mind, critical that that the concept of trust but verify, you know, is a common theme, you know, in the boardroom that we cannot just take an unfettered uh, acceptance,
0: you know, of whatever we hear from that one single individual. You know, Theranos had a lot of really you know impressive dignitaries on their board. You know, and they did have, you know, a medical doctor like in Bill Frist, but he was, you know, he was a senator, a politician. And there really wasn't a sense of experience in lab testing or in medical device on the board. And and often we have board members who are brought to or are interested in joining a board because they're an investor, or maybe they're interested in joining a board because they've had success in another field and are trying to help bring a fresh set of eyes. Melanie, what are the kinds of things that that kind of board member who doesn't necessarily have the substantive uh, experience, what what can they do to get that substantive experience or connect to the business so they're not missing things like what they missed in Theranos?
2: Well, I think it's it's number one, it's, it's very hard if there's not at least one person on the board who has experience in a company's industry particularly once that company has reached a stage of commercialization. It's very hard. So if you find yourself on a board and, there, and you look around and there's no one that has expertise or experience in what the company is actually doing, I think the first thing you should do is address that risk. What is Is, is there somebody else that we as a board need to nominate so that we have a second view? Because as Tom said, if all the information and interpretation is coming from the CEO, while certainly you want to be supportive of your CEO, it's important to have a different view and to have some sort of, I guess, sound check on that information. And having another person who's experienced on the board is very important for that, particularly for the board members who don't have that expertise, because it gives you a second person to toss ideas off of, say, what do you think about this? I had a question. Am I missing something? How did you think about the CEO's answer to this question about laboratory compliance? And, and for those reasons, it's, it's very important to have that second person. If you don't, the best thing that you can do is to listen with a critical ear. And if, if you don't understand something, say, can you explain? And there's no shortage, particularly in fields where things are very, very complicated. There's no shortage of opportunity as a board member for you to sit down and have lunch with the CEO, have an informal communication if you need to, to also just understand more about the business that you're seeking to advise. And, and those are things I think board members can do if if there's really just not anyone on the board that they could ask other than the CEO is to try to think critically and find other ways for you to obtain that information. You could also, if you had relationships with other companies in the industry, you certainly can't give them information about your company, but you could ask, You know, listen to industry groups and, and try to educate yourself as best you can. See if there's continuing education, perhaps on that subject that might benefit you. Um, those are all strategies that one might undertake.
0: I've talked to a, several, uh, you know, investors in Theranos. And, you know, one of the things that came up several times in those conversations was just how little access they had to the actual lab. Or if they did get access to the lab, it, it wasn't the folks on the team who understood what goes on in the lab. It was folks who on the team who were, you know, maybe maybe senior on the team, but not necessarily people who were experts. In lab, the other thing I've often heard is even if the board had impressive dignitaries on it who weren't necessarily skilled at lab testing, they had an advisory board that you know was full of people who were from the lab uh, world, and you know that makes me chuckle because I think you know there's a big difference between a governing board and an advisory board. Tom, maybe it's a good time to remind people that what really happens on these advisory boards, and maybe if you had a CEO who's trying to control information how would they use that advisory board?
1: Well, yeah, this is a great point because that distinction between the supervisory board, which has fiduciary duties, a duty of care and diligence, right? Um, a reasonable person, right? They need to be asking questions. They need to be doing diligence. The board members themselves should be in the lab picking the tires, right? That's not unusual. That is what you do as part of your job. And in this case, it didn't seem to be the case. From what I can tell, the scientific advisory board is effectively used as a Something of a smokescreen, I guess, to try to validate information that maybe wasn't quite correct. Those advisors tend to be used in very limited circumstances. Their time commitment is quite small, and it's often to you know help provide uh, you know access to the industry or particular areas of expertise that the particular advisor offers. And uh, that is very different than being you know the person who's got a fiduciary obligation to the shareholders across the entirety of the organization and, the, and is responsible ultimately for. Supervising the operators.
0: Before we move off the topic of this idea of concentration and power and communication, anything else you guys want to mention on that topic?
2: I do. I think one thing that's so frustrating about this case is that and maybe it's you know hindsight is always 2020 20. but one thing that is so frustrating about this case is if you listen to the interviews of those that worked at Theranos for instance Tyler Schultz speaks about the difference between the carpeted world and the tiled world aka the lab and he felt like there was a bifurcation between the two and the carpeted world didn't really understand what was happening in the lab So the information, and there was actually whistleblowing within the company that never made it to the board. So the information was there. So just one thing that I believe is very important for a board to ensure that it has the ability to do is to have channels of information, various means of input to obtain from the operating business to the board. That could be in the form of a whistleblower policy that's overseen by a board member, a chief compliance officer that has a direct report to the board, where the board has direct access to that chief compliance officer for issues. And I think that's just particularly important in a regulated industry such as this. And also particularly tragic in this case, in that the information was there, but it unfortunately doesn't appear to have made it to the people that needed or could have made a difference.
0: Yeah, I think that brings us to our second takeaway, which is really like the idea that there wasn't a culture of compliance and that if you're looking at a company, you want to be looking for signs of that kind of culture of compliance. Tom, what are some things that jump out to you as, as a sign that there's a culture of compliance or, or a lack of compliance?
1: Yeah, I mean, at a base level, you know, you need to have in place early, you know, in your in your company's life, a variety of policies that can be adhered to, you know, by your employees and, and others. You know, codes of conduct, codes of ethics, uh, and you know, anti harassment policies. You know, a whole variety of those kinds of things. It may, and in regulated industries, as as Melanie noted, compliance uh, structures around um, you know the science and the labs. Typically, those are the kinds of things that w- would roll up to your CEO. But you also want to make sure that, you know, for example, on finance, it rolls to the CFO. That you, you have your audit or finance committee of the board that can have access to that information. Maybe a designated board member. Likewise, um, compliance committee uh, or or other committees mm-hmm. of the board that would have this kind of information roll up to them and ensure that more than just you know again that information bottleneck is not not occurring, but that it is through multiple channels. Early on in Series A round type businesses, you know, there's a lot going on and you don't typically pull those together. But Theranos was many rounds in and raised nearly a billion dollars. And, you know, it certainly, I would have hoped that those kinds of checks and balances would have been implemented long before
0: those dollars were raised. Well, one of the things that jumps out at me is uh, probably because he was asking too many questions, Theranos fired the CFO, Henry Mosley, and then didn't replace him. And that is a huge warning sign for me. When you have somebody in such an important position, have that person leave and have, have there not be a replacement it says a lot about what was happening. Again, going back to the idea of concentration of communication, but also just that idea of a culture of compliance. And we saw that, again, echoed a little bit with FTX, who didn't even have a CFO. So you're, you're engaging in, in highly risky financial instruments in the cryptocurrency marketplace world. And you don't have a CFO, it's sort of a big warning sign that maybe compliance isn't top on the, on the list of things people care about. Melanie, how about you? What, what about you on this idea of culture of compliance and, and in looking for things that are missing or, or signs of there being a good culture of compliance?
2: Yeah, it, I think it's, it comes down to a certain amount of human nature. When you see an issue, a lot of times human nature can be to just, in my view, avoid it you know don't talk about this risk don't talk about these other things that we think might be going wrong or that could go wrong and i would encourage people you know particularly board members to think about don't necessarily try to hide those things or follow that very natural human impulse to perhaps you know ignore or try to to cover but to address it and also have faith if you believe that your business is presenting an opportunity have faith in the opportunity and have faith that the opportunity will overcome the risk that you disclose And having a sort of culture of openness and understanding about that, where people have the freedom to speak, where board members perhaps, and I've seen board members do this, to ask other executive members that are in the boardroom, do you agree with this plan? Do you agree with the plan that the CEO has put forward? Or they'll ask the CEO, is your management team in full agreement, particularly when they're traversing into a risky area? And I think those sort of cultural things and having this idea of collaboration and, and multiple lines of communication and really having the, I guess, how do I want to say, fortitude to own your risk and sell in spite of your risks, but not hide the risks. And that's a good way to think about many aspects of raising money that um, you do it on the capital markets, whether you do it privately. I think it's a good, a good way to think about it.
0: No, it's like perfect words to, words to live by. You know, if <laughs> if if you can't explain your risk and the and the reasons you're going to be able to overcome those and and survive or thrive, then you, you know you really should be thinking to yourself, maybe I'm in, maybe we're in the wrong spot here. And and I think more and more of our clients, as the macroeconomic realities change, more and more of our clients are going to have to have honest conversations with them about whether their product is working, and whether it's worth investing more in it. The one thing CEOs always tell me is that the loneliest place in the world is the CEO chair, and the the reason for that I think is because often it's very difficult to communicate some of the toughest things to your board, right? And it's often very difficult to communicate the toughest things to the people who work for you, and so you end up talking to your spouse who doesn't care, you know, about these things. Right? Care <laughs> about so, or or even better, you you sometimes talk to your lawyer. In fact, I think all of us have been in that role where. We're often we're the first sounding board, but it leads me to something, Tom, that you've told me before, which is the best board members are the ones who are just giving tremendous support to the CEO. And that one of the things we should look at in terms of the Theranos example is if you're a board member on the Theranos board and you're not providing tremendous support to that CEO, that CEO is looking for support elsewhere, maybe with Sonny Bawani, right? And that relationship Kind of spun out of control. But one of the things that I think about in terms of advising board members is how do you put yourself in a position to be able to give tremendous support? Or what are the best things that you see board members doing to put themselves in that trusted uh, support role for CEOs?
1: I find that the board members who are most supportive uh, are, are not board members who follow the CEO blindly. You know, but rather our board members who seek information you know evidence based decisions and strategies that they engage themselves deeply in that kind of matter that they promote transparency and discussion that it's not that bad news doesn't necessarily mean a threatened, terrible outcome for the CEO as their job is on the line, but rather bad news is something to be shared and to be tackled together, right? And so those that's what I mean by support. And, and where I see board members who are most effective, they're supportive in that way. They they foster transparency. They foster a solution mindset. And they work with the CEO and evidence-based decision-making. And when you, when you see that in, in action, it empowers the CEO in a positive way. And it allows for that CEO to really um, make well-informed decisions um, with 100% conviction, which is really, really critically important. And if a board member, as you said, Steve, feels that they can't provide that, that 100% support to the CEO, then something has to change. Right. And, and there's one of two outcomes, right? You know, one is you, you create that culture that we, I just mentioned, uh, or you replace your CEO. You know, and it's it's and that is the most important job of a board member. You know, it is it is that decision to hire slash fire the CEO, the leader of the of the company, the operator, because the board isn't engaged in operations, and so it needs to have you know the most capable person at the helm. And if a board member can't be hundred percent supportive of that person, then they either don't have the right person or they've got to change the way they built their culture.
0: That's a great point you make because our last podcast session was actually on that, on how you manage a CEO and maybe how you can uh, put yourself in a position then to terminate and move on from a CEO. So for those listeners who are interested in what Tom was just talking about, check out our last podcast session with our colleague, Jen Rubin. All right. Well, so in just wrapping this up, I think the three big takeaways that we have for board members is... If you find yourself in a position where you're not getting access to information, where the channels of communication are very tightly controlled, you want to push past that. And you want to push past that uh, to, to make sure that you get access to that information. You create lines of communication beyond just the CEO, also with the CCO, also with other board members who are maybe more knowledgeable about the, about the subject matter. The second point really is looking for and fostering a culture of compliance. You know, when we're breaking things, it doesn't mean that we're doing it in the Wild West. It means we're breaking things and we're taking risk, but we're taking calculated risk, as Melanie was saying, that you have to be able to make the case for your company that these risks are worthwhile and can be overcome. And the third thing is, Board members need to be giving tremendous support to their CEOs. It's a lonely place to be. And the worst place to be as a CEO is somewhere where you don't feel like, you know, you have any trusted resources or you don't have the help around you to fix the biggest problems. Before we move on and close up the podcast, I thought it'd be helpful to talk about two other areas that I think are lessons or takeaways from the Theranos and FTX disasters. One is diligence. It's just very interesting to me where diligence went over the last couple of years. There was transactions where there was very little diligence being done. You know, if you don't get access to the lab to check out with people who understand how labs work, you have to heed that. You know, Pfizer, for instance, was an example of a company that asked questions of Theranos and decided not to work with them based on the lack of clarity in the answers they were provided. So it's not just doing diligence, but also heeding that diligence. The other thing is, I think this is an opportunity to have a conversation about clear regulation. You know, the area that Theranos was operating in is an area where the FDA has some conflicting and some detailed compliance requirements, but that they're not very well understood in the marketplace. And so there was very little oversight on the regulatory side by either the regulators or by the board members. And I think one of the things we need to think about is how can we make regulation more clear and more applicable so that we're not only in the enforcement, we're not only sentencing people to jail, but we're actually preventing the, the things we don't want to happen from happening. Before we uh, close up, any last statements, uh, Melanie, Tom?
1: An ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. So I, I agree with that point a lot, Steve.
0: I think that's well said. All right. Thank you very much, Tom, Melanie. We'll see you at the next podcast session, and thanks to our listeners for listening in to this special edition of Mintz's podcast series, In the Boardroom.